Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Pastor Josh Karstensen is continuing a series on John, where Jesus heals a man and then claims to be God. This claim is incredibly offensive because it breaks all the Jews' rules, but Jesus defends his claim with five evidence-based arguments. What evidence are you looking for that would help you believe that he is alive today and is worth giving your entire life to follow? After the message, you're invited to answer some application questions, which you can find on our website right under the worship service video. Now, here's today's teaching. Man, it's so good to see more and more faces back. I know people are coming back. They're feeling more comfortable. It is great to be together. As I just said hi to our whole online church family, good morning to you all as well. Um, I know more and more people are, are getting vaccinated. Myself, I got vaccinated on Friday. That's exciting. It felt like a long season where every single couple of weeks, every week, I'd get a message from our state saying, um, oh, here's all the people who are qualified and pastors are not. And it's like this weekly reminder that we actually, we want all the pastors in our state to die. If you could just like, like just get kicked out to the end. So I figured like a week before they said everyone and anyone, they kind of threw us a bone and said, okay, maybe you can get in before everyone and anyone. I was almost expecting an email that said everyone can get them except for pastors. But um, here we go. So good luck with that. I know some of you anti-vaxxers are like, what in the world are you talking about right now? But it's all right. Here we go. Um, unity, right? Unity. We're all good. God is good. Um, if I start growing a tail next week, we're in trouble. But I guess we'll all grow tails together. I don't know. Here we go. Sorry. Um, let's go John chapter 5. If you got a, a black Bible in front of you on one of those... Uh, Little things in the chair, it's on page 890, I believe, somewhere right in there. But a few things just up front before we get in. I wanted to say for all of you who helped fill out the survey that we sent out a couple of weeks ago in our Friday email, thank you for doing that. It really helps us uh, try to get a pulse for what people are feeling, how people are thinking in terms of uh, best practices for services and so and such. And so kind of coming out of a few different discussions, looking ahead to the summer, most likely what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing services outside this summer. We're probably about 90% sure that that's what we're going to do. Um, starting at about Father's Day all the way through Labor Day, we'll We'll be outside. Um, Hopefully, we'll be one service. And, uh, you know, there's a number of different reasons for that. Ultimately, trying to get to herd immunity, trying to give a little bit more time. It's fun. It's the Northwest. It's beautiful outside. We have an amazing lawn. Uh, okay, we have a decent lawn that needs some work, but uh, we're, so we're going to be doing, trying to figure out how we can better that space outside, but I think it's a sweet thing, all being together outside for summer, and unlike last summer, we will still have uh, the kids' church stuff going on at the same time, so we don't have to have all of my children running around the whole time, um, but it'll be nice, so kids' church will be happening, youth will be happening, middle school, high school, while us adults can be outside all together, so very much looking forward to that. Uh, Also, I've shared this in a few different spaces, but we are full on in our search for associate pastor. Um, Obviously, I I became lead pastor about two years, I don't know, a year and a half ago, 
and that vacancy has been there. And through COVID, we didn't feel like it was right to go ahead with that, but we feel like now is absolutely time. And so we are, we're going ahead with that. And as um, our beloved Pastor Kurt has transitioned, we're also looking for a children's ministry director. So just prayer. I'm just asking really that you would write this down. Pray for our church as we're looking for the right fit in both of those roles. Uh, as I've talked to a lot of different leaders over the years, they say um, how important uh, these these key staff hires are for the direction of a church and just for the culture of a team. And so we're really just asking you to join us in prayer. It's a lot of extra work, but it's hard. It's hard discerning, God, what's, what's right? Because no one's perfect. You know, everyone comes with things that are really good and things that are not so great. And so trying to figure out the right fit. Um, just wanted to give you guys a little bit heads up about some of those big things coming up. And uh, if you are not getting regular communication, I would say um, make sure you're getting our Friday emails. If you don't know what those are, go to the Connect Desk. Every Friday we kind of send out, here's the latest and greatest. And uh, Chris does a great job at putting all that information together in a way that's enjoyable, palatable, and um, really helpful. So there it is. All right, let's get down to business. In 1937... Um, you have the Gallup company who started taking polls of all kinds of different things. And one of the things that they started taking polls on is church attendance in America. In 1937, 73% of adult Americans said that they belonged to a local church of sorts. And this is all kinds of different churches, not just Christian, evangelical. This is any church whatsoever. And for the next six decades, from 1937 all the way through the 90s, uh, the percentage of Americans who were involved in a church never dipped below 70%, right? Which is kind of shocking coming from the Northwest. You're like, 70% of people, wow. Um, but 70% of people uh, were regulars in, in church, and, and you have to believe that a pretty high correlation with that is people who believe that some sort of God exists who is for them. Um, but then something interesting started happening uh, around the year 2000. As we started a slow um, trickle downward. And there's been, um, in the last 10 years, a pretty rapid decline where for the first time ever, we are below 50%. We're right about 47% of people in all of America going to any sort of church whatsoever. And if you look at the different demographics of age, uh, those numbers plummet as well, where, you know, those born before 1946, about 66% of them uh, go to church. You look at uh, boomers, about 58% of them uh, are going to church. Gen Xers, about 50%. My age, millennials, it's about 36%. And the next generation, Gen Z, is just so small that you, there's no even number to quantify it. Uh, that's not totally true, but it's really, really small. And again, you, you kind of, if, if you're from the Northwest, like where I grew up, like 10% of people went to church. So this is nothing new, but as a whole, we're really witnessing something in our country. Um, we're witnessing a trend that no longer does God fit into our box of what's reasonable. No longer does a belief as a whole that um, there could be some supreme being who, who really has power over anything that just doesn't seem very plausible for a majority of people now into our country. And we're seeing a rapid change in this type of thinking. And here's the deal, though. For thousands of years, we have put God into a box. For thousands of years, we've created rules about who we think God is, about if we think that he could exist or not. And ultimately, it's these types of rules, and we talked about this last week, but it's these types of rules that got Jesus killed. It's these types of rules that when people met Jesus, they said, no, I don't think you are who you say that you are, and who you say that you are is really offensive, and we're going to actually kill you because you're claiming something that is no way possibly true. 
Today we're going to follow up with this conversation that Jesus had last week. Uh, Many of you were here with us for Easter, but we're going to see again what Jesus does when he makes a radical claim, a very bold claim that goes way beyond any of the logic and thinking of anyone in that day, ultimately leading to his death. So we're going to do three things today. We're going to look at what this claim is that Jesus made. We're going to look at an argument that he backs up his claim with, and then we're going to look at you and I. What are the boxes that we put Jesus in? So ultimately, last week, we we saw this encounter. If you were to go back and read the first part of John chapter 5, Jesus does something pretty incredible. He heals someone who's been um, who's been unable to walk for 38 years. Right? This man wasn't calling out to God. He wasn't calling out to Jesus, heal me. Jesus goes to this pool at Bethesda. He's around all kinds of people who are hurting, who are crippled, who are lame, who cannot walk. And Jesus says to this man, he says, do you want to be healed? The man says, well, I have no way of getting into the pool. And, God, and Jesus says to him, he says, hey, I don't need your pool. I don't need your methods. Rise, get up, take up your mat and walk. We talked about some of the offenses that happened when Jesus said these things. First of all, it was offensive to all these religious leaders around them who had all these different rules about what you were and weren't allowed to do, primarily built around this idea of Sabbath. And one of the rules was you're not allowed to work. And apparently healing someone is work, which is just ridiculous. But that's what Jesus says. He, ca- he asks him to get up and walk. And then we talked about the fact that it was significant that he asked him to do that and to take up his mat. Which sounds, again, it sounds so silly, but Jesus says, rise, take up your mat and walk. And the fact that he did that on Sabbath, and it wasn't on a Tuesday, and it wasn't on a Thursday, everything would have been just fine if Jesus did it on one of those days. But Jesus breaks their rules, and he asks him to pick up his mat. And everyone gets really upset. I cannot believe you would ask this person to pick up their mat. Which, again, is just so hard to believe that that's a possible reaction. And then Jesus doubles down on what he does, and he says ultimately, that he is God, and he makes a claim. And this claim we're going to read, I'm going to reread it, um, starting in verse 17 of John chapter 5. Jesus today is going to continuously build on this claim that he is God. So um, today, we're not going to read one full section. We are going to I'm going to kind of just work through a ton of different scriptures in John 5, um, but we're not just going to read it all at once because there's a bunch there. But let's, let's pick up where we left off last week with verse 17. Here's Jesus. He says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Again, this is a massive moment in Jesus' ministry where he calls himself God and everyone starts to hate him. This is the moment where most people start to turn against him that ultimately leads to his death. But this week, Jesus responds and he triples down on this claim and he, we're going to read what he says in response to this claim that he is God. Listen to some of the things that Jesus says starting in verse 19. He says, For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he passes from death to life. 
Jesus says, not only am I God, but I am everything that you think that God is. I am his very essence. I have all of his power. I have all the judgment. I have all authority. And so, yes, I may have made this claim that I'm God, but I'm going to back it up and saying, I am everything. When you think of God the Father, when you think of the one that you have been worshiping for thousands of years, that is who I am. And you have to put yourself in their shoes how offensive that would have been. Right? You go all the way back to their, their, um, their, their, basic framework on how they're supposed to live and how they're supposed to act. You go back to the 10 commandments that God gave Moses. And what was the very first commandment? The very first commandment, we read this in Exodus chapter 20, and this is the worldview that everyone lived in. We read this. He says, I am the Lord, your God. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore you shall have no other gods before me. And listen to this language. Verse 4 of Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself to carve image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the waters under the sea. You shall not bow down or serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the Father on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here is Jesus To to them, he's a man, and he's saying, I am everything that is God. But they've got a worldview that says, if I worship anything that isn't God, for the fourth and fifth generations, we are going to be in some significant trouble. How are they supposed to to, uh, react? How are they supposed to respond when here's Jesus saying, I do what the Father does? You know, I give life to whom I want to give life to. I judge who I want to judge. If you believe me, you have eternal life. That's crazy talk coming from someone who's walking around the earth. I love what Jesus does. Let's listen to his words in verse 31 of John chapter 5. He says this, he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So he says, okay, I can say all these things, but anyone can say these things, right? Any one of us right now could stand up and say, hey guys, I'm God. I'm everything that God is. I'm his very essence. I have all of his power. I am the one who ultimately uh, is divine authority. And I know some of you parents like to think that way to your kids, like to talk that way, but ultimately like, anyone can make that claim. We can make that claim. And Jesus knows that he knows what it f- must feel like to receive that claim. And so in this whole next section, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say, here's the deal. I know I can't just make a claim. I've got to back this claim up. I've got to give you an argument. Why should you believe me? Why should you believe me when I say that I am God? When for a, a very long time, you weren't supposed to worship anything but God the Father. Why should you believe me? And he gives five different arguments. It's brilliant. It's a bit savage. Jesus goes to the authority that they believe upon all authority, and he hits all the highest things that they would have held to their highest standard. So we're going to look at all five of these arguments. Today's going to be a bit more of an apologetic for who Jesus really is. In ancient Hebrew, we learned this in Deuteronomy, that in order for them to believe someone in court, they had to have two, um, even better, three witnesses. So for someone's testimony to be held true, um, they had to have at least two better three witnesses. But Jesus goes above and beyond, and he gives them five. Here's five reasons why you need to believe these words that I am saying to you. The first argument, argument number one, is John the Baptist says that I am God. We read this in verse 32. It says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, I, I could give easily a full sermon on the anticipation of who John was, on the fact that people were waiting for him a long time, but I'm just going to summarize this as quickly as possible. If you remember back in December, we talked about this a little bit. At the end of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, you have all these um, religious Jews who are going through all the practices of what it meant to be a follower of God. So they were going to synagogue, or they were practicing going to church. They were even giving money. But the, the text says their hearts were far from God. Their actions, their attitudes, while they were away from church, while they were away from their pastors and small group leaders, were anything but godly. And God says, I'm going to judge you for this. And in this judgment, this is what it's going to look like. I'm going to return. There's going to be severe judgment. But before I return, Elijah is going to come, and he is going to prepare the way for my return. We read this at the very end of Malachi. We read this in Malachi verse 5 of chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So here's everyone. They're waiting. They're waiting for this Elijah-like person to come because he's going to come prepare the way and then God's coming back. That's what everyone believes. And then 400 years of silence. God doesn't do anything. There's no activity in terms of um, God speaking. We have no scripture during this time. And then in Luke chapter 1, the silence is shattered when an angel visits Zechariah and says, I'm going to give you guys a son. Your son is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what does he say? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John's going to come. He's going to come in the power and spirit of Elijah. And, he's, and people were anticipating Elijah coming. At the end of John chapter 1, we didn't actually study this in our time together here, but at the end of John chapter 1, um, uh, some of the, the scribes and Pharisees go to John because they're getting excited about this, right? Hmm, who are you? And they go to him and they ask him this question. They say, who are you? John, who are you? We've been waiting for Elijah to come. They ultimately ask, are you Elijah? And this is what John says. We go this, we see this, if you want to flip back in John chapter 1, verse 33. And I've never read this until this last week. I've never read it like this. I always used to read, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. But I read it a little differently this week. This week I, I hear, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. So he's basically saying, no, I am the one that Isaiah has been talking about. I am the one, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. And then in verse 29, here's John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So witness number one, here's John the Baptist, the person that everyone's been waiting for for a long time, this pre-runner before God's coming back. And John's saying, yep, I'm the one, I'm the voice calling out in the desert. And here's the one who takes away the sins of the world. So when Jesus is asked, how in the world can you claim that you're God? He says, witness number one, this person that you've been waiting for for a long time, this person comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, this is John. John himself says that I am he. 
But I love Jesus. He's, he's incredibly brilliant. He essentially knows, he says, hey, but I know that you're not really going to listen to the witness of just another person. I know that you're not just going to listen to the witness of John. We see this in verse 34 of our text of chapter 5. He says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. He says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So here's Jesus basically saying, guys, I really want you to believe me. Like, this is really important. Here's John. You know him. You've seen him. You've given him some sort of authority in your culture. Believe what he has to say. But I know that you're not really going to believe him because he's just a man. But guys, for your soul, I really want you to. Would you just believe what he has to say? But he doesn't stop there. He says, I know you're going to struggle with that. So let me give you another, let me give you another argument. Let me give you my miracles. We see this in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Right now, this is, to me, this is like the deal breaker. This is the kicker. Like Jesus is saying, hey, I know, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. I'm going to claim that I'm God. You don't have to take my word for it. Um, here's John. He says that I'm God, but I know you're going to struggle with that. How about these miracles? Right? Like water to wine, that's pretty sweet. Peter's mother-in-law healing a paralyzed person. Oh yeah, how about the person that you just saw who couldn't walk for 38 years? How about that? Like that's pretty good evidence. And he's saying, the Father has given me the ability to heal people. And, and the strange thing is, like his miracles were not deniable. No one in Scripture says you didn't do that. What's interesting is as Jesus continues on with these miracles, what do people eventually say? They eventually say, you're getting the power to do these miracles, but it's from the devil. Right? Which is so strange because it seems to me like if the devil is giving someone the power and ability to do something, it doesn't seem like he would give someone the power to heal someone. Right? Like, oh, you're suffering. Let's make you better. Like, I, I can think of a lot of other things that the devil would give you power to do. Healing people doesn't really seem to be in that wheelhouse. Jesus continues on. He goes, let me give you another argument. How about the very voice of God? In verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. How about Luke 3, when Jesus is being baptized by John? In Luke 3, he's being baptized by John, and you hear an audible voice of God speaking, saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Right? There's no ability for you in the back of your mind to go, like, maybe that was a loudspeaker somewhere, maybe someone you know, just had some PA hidden somewhere. Like Those things did not exist. Right? Later on, and this was after this conversation, but later on, the same voice was heard on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, where they're up there with Jesus and they hear the words, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Right? Jesus could have stopped right there. I mean, that feels like pretty good evidence. Right? Like, uh, I just healed someone. Uh, John, this person you guys have been waiting for for 400 years, the pre-runner to the return. Like, that seems pretty credible. How about all my miracles? How about the audible voice of God? Like, that see, like, so far that seems like a pretty good case. If you're going to make a case as to why Jesus is God, like, that seems pretty bulletproof. But he doesn't stop there. He gives two more arguments, and he appeals to what is most precious to the Jews here. Again, this is brilliant. Argument number four, he appeals to their Old Testament. He appeals to their, um, their holy book. Um, kind of side note, just real quick, when I think of this text, on, 
on Friday night, I had a dream. I didn't sleep for very long, uh, but I had a dream on Friday night that I'm preaching. And I, I'm going to say it wasn't here uh, because it wasn't very clear where I was, but no one was paying attention, right? Everyone was talking to one another, and I'm just up here preaching, and literally no one was, was listening at all. And so you know how like, teachers sometimes will just stop talking and just kind of wait? So I, st- I stop, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm stopping. And it went on for what felt like a long time, and eventually everyone kind of caught on. And then, like, with this, the deepest passion that I could potentially ever preach, I started preaching this next text, just yelling it at this church. And I woke up and I said, man, does our church need that, God? What was that all about? I don't know. I say all that to say, just listen carefully, because maybe something's going on there. (laughs) True story. And I'd never have dreams about preaching. Verse 31, I, I hear the longing cry of Jesus when he says this. This is, this is some of the most powerful and, and scary words that Jesus ever says to us. He says this, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He says, guys, the very thing that you build your life on, because these people were addicted to the Old Testament. I mean, they lived and breathed God's word. He's saying everything in God's word is about me, the whole thing, the whole entire Old Testament. They only had the Old Testament back then. It's all about me. It all points to me from the very beginning to the very end. It's all about me. Man, if I had time, I'd love to go through every one of these, but I'm just going to share a few of these. There are some 55 different references to Christ in the Old Testament. These people were waiting for him. They knew that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, verse 14. They knew he'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. They knew he'd be a direct descendant of Jacob and Isaac, Genesis 28, 14. They knew that the Messiah would come on a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. They knew that he would come from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. They knew that he would flee to Egypt, Hosea 11, 1. They knew that he would be from the line of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. They knew that he would be from the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, 12. They knew that he'd be called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. They knew that he would be, that there would be a messenger who would prepare the way, Isaiah 40, verse 3. They knew that he would be from Galilee, Isaiah 9, 1. They knew that he would speak in parables, Psalm 78, 1. They knew that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and they knew that the money would be used to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11, 12. They knew that they would, that he would be spit on and they would strike him, Isaiah 50, verse 3. They know that, they knew that he would be despised, and rejected, Isaiah 53.3. They knew that soldiers would cast lots for his garments, Psalm 22.18. They knew his hands and his feet would be pierced hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented in Psalm 22.16. They knew that. They knew all that. Jesus is saying, your very scriptures, they're all about me. They're all about me. I am this Messiah, I am God, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And it's a terrifying reminder that we can know God's scripture inside and out and yet not have the love of God in us. There's nothing more discouraging than meeting someone who you find out is a Christian who's also a jerk. Right? You can know God's word and not have the love of God in you. 
And you can miss the very call that we as Christians are supposed to be the loving hands and feet of God. The final argument Jesus gives, and it piggybacks on the last one, and then I'm going to wrap it up here. The final argument is Moses himself. We see this in verse 45. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, Moses was at the top of the food chain. For them, Moses was the authority of all authorities. He was the father. He was the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament. He was the writer of the entire Torah. If you don't have Moses, Christianity does not make sense. You have no context in which you have a Savior. You need to understand who God is in creation, in His order, in the fall of mankind, and then the rise and the hope of a Savior. And Moses sets that whole tone. And what do we get in Moses? In Moses, you get from the very beginning, Genesis 3, that of the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. That's Jesus. We know that, right? We know beyond that. We know all about the Exodus, which is why it was so important that we said this first, this whole concept that we are a people enslaved, that we are a people who need to be freed, and that only happens through a sacrificial lamb, through this Passover, that Jesus ultimately is for us. We know this. We know that Jesus is the water in the desert. He is the food in the wilderness. He is the bronze serpent on the staff. We know that. Moses knew that they were waiting for this person to come. We're waiting for the temple where God dwells with us. And Jesus says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Everything Moses does points to me. And then he ends right there. I think it's kind of sad. And I, I, wish, I wish so bad that I could have been a fly on the wall and seen and heard more about this. Because eventually, apparently, it wasn't enough. I mean, it was enough for God's plan, but it, it got him killed. I mean, it's, it's so crazy to think. Here's Jesus. He makes this claim. He heals someone. He says, okay, uh, you, you couldn't walk for 38 years. I'm going to heal you, and I'm God. And they're saying, wait, you can't be God. And he says, yeah, I am God, and here's why. John testifies about it. The audible voice of God testifies about it. All of your scriptures testify about it. All these miracles that I'm doing testify about it. The highest source of all your authority, Moses himself testifies about it. What else do you need? Like, what could I possibly show you that would get you to believe who I am? And as we wrap it up, I have to ask us, what boxes do we have? We all have them. We all have a box that says, this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. Right? Maybe our box says that it's not possible that A, God could exist. B, God could do a certain something in my life. We have a box that says, man, I don't know if I could ever be this important. I don't know if I could be this effective. I don't know if I could ever be used by God in this way. We all have these boxes. What evidence do you need, sans Jesus raising from the dead? Because that is the hope that we have. Because ultimately, Jesus was killed before he rose from the dead. right? But then what happened after he rose from the dead? After he rose from the dead, all this evidence that he gave, he gave the ultimate trump card and said, you know what, I'm going to conquer death itself. You, you, you can't deny that. Sure, you can, you can make up, maybe all these people heard this voice, 
when God was speaking. Maybe this man really wasn't sick for 38 years. Maybe John really isn't who he says he is. Maybe all these people in the Bible, maybe we're just stretching things. And when he talked about Christ dying and his hands being pierced, maybe, maybe we're just looking back through lenses of history and putting our own ideas into that. But when you get to the cross, when you get to Jesus being killed in a way that no one could refute, and he rises from the dead, that starts a movement. And that movement has gone for thousands of years and billions of people have said, okay, whatever box I may have for you, I've got to open that wide open. i got to say, okay, if you conquered death, Jesus, you can have all authority on my life. Because you conquering death says there's so much more to life than just the 50, 60, 90 years that I might have here. That I'm willing now to take any risk that I might possibly take because what you've asked me to do is greater because you truly are God. So if Jesus rose from the dead, what boxes do you need to break out of? Last week, we, we had a little sticky note in our program. This week, we've got the same little sticky note. You see our little rise uh, sticky wall over there. I would just ask you again, what evidence do you need? I think it can be easy to, to point to the cross, and, and let's, let's do that, right? Let's say the cross is enough. But I think sometimes in life, sometimes we, we want a little bit more, which is so strange but I, I think it's, it's good occasionally to be really honest and say, Jesus, I'm struggling. Would you help me, A, if you're struggling to believe the cross is enough, would you, would you just write this week, God, help me to believe that the cross is enough to show that you're God. And then if you believe that, maybe another question this week is, God, what lie do I need to rise from that says I can't do this, that I'm not worthy, that I'm not good enough, that I'm a failure here, God, would you show me where I need to rise? Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that you knew exactly what the people needed to hear. And you gave the greatest argument you could possibly give. All these five things are irrefutable. Yet it still got you killed, this claim that you're God. But then we look past that and we look to the greatest argument where everything else gets thrown away, where Jesus, you rose from the dead and you conquered sin and death and all these claims that you made, even in John 5, when you say, if you just believe me, you don't have judgment anymore. And God, all we have to do is believe that you are God, that you conquered death, that you know us intimately, that you call us to a relationship with you and that we pass all judgment and we'll be with you. God, help us to rise from the lies that we believe. Help us to rise from the boxes that we put you in. And we are so good at putting you in boxes. Boxes about who you are, about things that you can and can't do. Boxes about who we are and what you can and can't do through us. God, would you help us to rise from those lies? We love you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage, including resources like our application questions. Thanks again for listening.